Hello and welcome to episode 154 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I am joined by James Rundle. Hello. And today we have a special guest for you all today, uh, Brian Cross. You are the head of UBS Asset Management's Quantitative Evidence and Data Science Group, correct? That's correct. Nailed it. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) I I tried to memorize it right before QED, we're going to call it That's right. That's fair enough, right? Yeah, that's fair enough. All right. Um, Brian, just for our listeners who might not be familiar with you, why don't you tell us just a little bit about uh, yourself uh, and what the QED group uh, is responsible for? Sure. Um, I've worked at UBS for 16 years. It makes me actually one of the longest tenured uh, UBS employees. I started off uh, at the investment bank uh, on a team that was program trading, but then eventually became quant trading. We did everything from um, principal program trading, ETF market making. I worked a lot on high frequency ETF NAV arbitrage. Uh, Then in 2010, I moved uh, to the investment bank's prop desk. I realized I had like a big hole in my swing. I had no idea how to pick stocks. And so I made a deal with the guy who was running the desk. I would teach you everything you, you, you want to know about quant, and you would teach me how to pick stocks. And so from 2010 to 2016, I did deep dive fundamental analysis. Nice. And, and uh, <laughs> like Warren Buffett style, highly concentrated stuff. And then in uh, late 2016, I was asked to come over to traditional asset management and run a team called Systematic Research. Um, and systematic research had three mandates. Uh, it had a traditional uh, factor-based uh, equity quant approach. Um, it also supported uh, the proprietary smart beta business. Um, and then it also had this kind of undefined, you know, future of quant uh, type strategy. Yeah. Um, and uh, CIOs turned over, new CIO came in and said, hey, I really want to do more in this future of quant strategy. In fact, like I want a centralized quant and data science resource to spread the gospel of quant and data science into places in the firm where there isn't any. Mm -hmm. And that's where QED was born. And the whole idea is there's a skill set gap, but then there's also a need uh, for better science uh, to be embedded within the fundamental investment process. And that's what my team seeks to do. So we work directly with the fundamental investors um, on their problems, on their questions, to help them come up with a better investment mosaic, um, and then that'll ultimately result in better client outcomes. Uh, so th- this group, the thinking behind it here, maybe delve a little bit more into that. What were some of the opportunities that you thought that maybe were being missed that if we put this group together, this will be this will benefit the organization as a whole? Yeah, I, I think what the realization is, is that um, you have an industry that is uh, coming under enormous cost pressure from a low-cost competitor. So um, what I mean is active management versus passive management. Right. It's a classic innovator's dilemma. Like, um, And because of that, how do you create a business that is able to both maintain price and get additional scale? Um, and technology is always the solution to that. Um, and so uh, what what we said is is that, well, the investment process itself, it really hasn't evolved a lot over the last 50, maybe even 100 years. It's the mm-hmm. same sort of cottage in- industry of you've got a cobbler, hand-making shoes. Um, it's a great pair of shoes. It's worked. It resul- it's, it's, it's got great uh, results, uh, but it doesn't have any scale. Um, and it doesn't have any science in it. Um, and so... Wouldn't it be nice? And uh, you know, I think 
it, it, it certainly makes logical sense that the more science and rigor you put into the process, um, uh, the better the outcome is going to be. All the other industries in the world, whether it's you know marketing or um, you know internet providers or you know even you know uh, heavy industry, even airlines, you know something like that. There's a there's a large sort of science uh, based decision making component, and the financial industry, at least the active management industry, has not kept pace with that. Um, so the idea was we could have this team, you know, help drive science into the investment forecast. The other thing is is that the tools and techniques used by fundamental analysts are changing rapidly. There's been this explosion in um, alternative data providers over the last couple of years um, that uh, create new opportunity sets um, uh, and also create new insights that we couldn't have gotten years ago. Um, combine that with um, the sort of ubiquity of machine learning um, and you've got a really powerful um, you know, combination of a potential new alpha generation. And so, but you've got this sort of uh, these fundamental investors who are trained in sort of the classical like Wharton or CFA style, um, you know, knowledge base. They're, they don't have that that sort of statistics knowledge or statistics, statistics skill set um, uh, to bring those tools to bear. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, why can't we create a team that acts as a service to these investors that by doing so get scale across the entire investment platform um, and then we'll get better outcomes out of that. Yeah. You go first. You go, James. All right. I'll, 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 I'll back off. You go. Uh, no, I, I just find this interesting. So, I mean, I mean, a lot of the discussion around sort of active and passive just tends to have the foregone conclusion that people just want exposure rather than necessarily yeah. the old form of kind of, you know, portfolio selection and everything else. Um, so you guys obviously still believe is in the active process, but I think what you're doing just in a nutshell really is making it smarter, right? You're putting some more nuanced data around it. Absolutely. Putting actually, you know, intelligent information that can guide, I guess, better returns and better decision making? Yeah, I mean, so we've got an obligation to our clients at any cost to to be smarter than we were yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so whether that's, you know, interviewing a new company management team or whether that's applying a toolkit then it can help get them better results, like that's in our client's best interest to do. True. Um, you know, on top of that, you know, if a client has a choice between um, a passive solution, you know, at, you know, cost A, and an active solution, you know, at cost greater than A, um, you know, the active solution has to justify the, you know, the incremental cost paid. And so, you know, how can we, um, you know, continue to justify that? We have to get smarter. Yeah. And we have to, you know, embrace new technologies, embrace new data sets, figure out, you know, what is the market missing in new and differentiated ways. Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's the same old sort of, um, you know, it tastes like chicken to everything that's happened in the evolution of finance anyway. Like, so, you know, before there was Excel, how did people do, you know, financial documents, you mm -hmm. know, um, mm -hmm. you know, and then Excel came along and now everyone's got a model in Excel. Um, you know, even before, and actually the Quandle guys have a great, uh, if you don't know them, they're an alternative data provider. Sure. Um, they've got a great slide presentation that talks about like the evolution of uh, alternative data. And one of the points they make is, you know, pre- um, 1940 pre-Great Depression, nobody looked at financial statements. Mm -hmm. It was all kind of trading. You know, you had like the you know the guys in the in the corner, you know, cornering the market on railroad stocks or whatever the case was. Um, and then all of a sudden, like you know, the depression came and you had a catalyst. And now I've got to look at like the actual health of a company. Mm -hmm. um, and so financial statements was alternative data. You know, un, you know, using mathematics and statistics to to understand that alternative data was now a new technology. 
Um, the same sort of evolution happened in the 1980s with you know, the market data providers like a Bloomberg or like a Reuters, where now all of a sudden, like the cost of acquiring this data, you know, declined, you know, precipitously, like the same thing is happening today. Mm. And it's just that the availability of these techniques and the ease of use of these techniques, as well as the different data sets, has sort of created a perfect storm for this to be adopted into the financial marketplace. Yeah, and, and I may be jumping the gun here for questions that Tony has later on, but that, that's something we keep okay. hearing again and again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is that yeah, that's a really nice example about the financial statements, like you know, yeah. being a form of early alternative data. Um, people keep saying that you know now, with the kind of availability of alternative data and the way it's becoming kind of, I guess, organised and standardised and incorporated into the investment process, yeah. what we call alternative data is actually becoming the new fundamental data in a way. Is that something you would sort of, or necessary at least to the investing process? I yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I definitely think so. I think that knowledge of what's out there from an alternative data perspective is mm -hmm. table stakes at this point. Yep. What I would say, though, is that it's still such early days in the alternative data industry. It's a little bit of the Wild West. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And like I can go through some war stories about data providers that I've had conversations with, and you look just a little bit under the hood, and you realize that there's actually nothing there. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's nothing there of substance. Um, and when there is something there of substance, you you know you do a bunch of testing around it, and you, you realize, well, actually, this really isn't that valuable. Like, mm -hmm. um, so we've actually kind of, and, and so in 2018, we spent a lot of time just testing data sets. Yeah. And the thought was, is like, let's talk to our investment professionals, figure out what they care about, and then based on what they care about, let's test a data set. And if there's a really interesting data set, we'll build a process around this data set. Let me just ask you really quick, just yeah. to clarify for, for our listeners, are these internal data that you're working with, or are these data sets you're, you're, you're testing external third-party providers, yeah. and they kind of just allow you to say, are you allowed to kind of say, listen, we're not ready to sign on yet, or do you have to kind of sign on for a, a certain amount of time, and yeah, how does I mean, that kind of process work? Well, most people will give you like a, a free trial period. Yeah. It, okay. it varies in, gotcha. in length, you know, determine, you know, some people will try to get you to do a paid trial, but for yeah. your listeners at home, never do a paid trial. <laughs> like, uh, always push back. Always yeah, push it. back on the data vendor on that. Uh, sorry, guys. Uh, but, um, but uh, yeah, so you've got a trial period. You know, there you have to develop, like, kind of um, – and this isn't pure quant investing. Like, yeah. so if this was pure quant investing, there's a playbook. I can reach, reach for the playbook. Um, you, know, you know, the guys, you know, at, you know, you know BGI or AQR wrote that playbook. 15 years ago, right? Sure. So this is this is a completely different sort of data paradigm. You have to reach to a new playbook. You have to design, you know, something um, uh, uh, that makes sense. So you test the data. Maybe there's something interesting. Um, but what you'll find is is that there's a lot of data sets out there um, that are really difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of say that the problem is the data is shallow, narrow, and sparse. And you know what I mean by that is is that um, it's shallow in that a lot of these alternative data sets, you know, you talk to a vendor and they're like, how many quarters of data do you have? And the vendor said, we've got eight quarters of data, <laughs> but only six quarters are any good. Yeah, um, right. You know, so like that's a huge problem. Like, yeah. you know, statistics as taught in the classical sense can't deal with that problem easily. Um, and then the other thing is they're narrow. Like it's, you know, com you know sector specific data. So. You know, everybody talks about credit card data. Well, credit card data is really only good for when a consumer interacts with a particular business. So yeah. it's limited to the publicly traded companies and or available bonds that are that have to do with consumers. So it's you know, not cross-sectionally broad. Um, and then it also tends to be sparse. So there's missing data all over the place. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
there's also calendar issues, security mapping issues, you know, all this stuff that we kind of take for granted when we, you know, use either like a FactSet API or Bloomberg API or something like that, where they've handled all the ETL on the back end and, um, uh, and you don't have to worry about like security master list or date conventions or anything. I mean, you still do, you know, for the listeners at home, be careful on that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we kind of take that for granted. That's not the stage of the alternative data world. Yeah. Um, you know, um, if you're lucky, you know, you've got a provider who's gonna dump a file into an S3 bucket um, if you're unlucky, you know, they're going to want to do like an FTP. If you're really unlucky, you know, they'll walk over a hard drive or something like that to you. Um, <laughs> super bootleg at the worst of times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's also, it's, there's a huge spectrum like across the world. So, you know, my, you know, UBS asset management, it's a global business. Like most of our actual, you know, assets are not in the U.S. Like, mm-hmm. but the U.S. is by far the most developed like alternative data market. Um, so, you know, when you go and look for, you know, uh, alternative data in Asia, there's a ton of providers. Um, and it's just, it's really hard and it'll, very time consuming to sort of sift through like the, you know, the good from the bad. As you've gone through the alternative, cause like you say, alternative data, God, the space is just, it's, it, it means so much, incorporates yeah. so much. Whether it's um, geolocation, satellite, cell phone, credit card, anything, have you found that there are at least sectors, as, you, as your group has kind of started to go through an experiment, have you found that there are at least sectors that you can say, all right, the, there's, the, the providers in this space are at least more mature, they're, they're a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's consumer. Like, yeah. you know, there's plenty of, you know, consumer-related data, whether it's credit card, whether it's point-of-sale scanner data that the advertising community has been using for years, or whether it's um, web scraping or something like that. There's, there's plenty of consumer data out there. After that, it drops off pretty quickly. What I would say, though, is that, um, you know, in 2018 was about, like, looking at this problem and trying to tackle this problem. We've got actually, like, I think a pretty key learning here is that um, there's, there's, there's too much out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we take this, if you build it, they will come approach either. We're never going to get a hit like, or when we do have a hit and we've got a couple of hits, um, uh, it's going to be really hard to drive internal adoption of this as part of the mosaic and part of the process. Sure. Um, and so what we've, we've sort of pivoted in that it's better for us to focus on workflows. So I spent last year interviewing well over a hundred of the investment professionals at asset management. And it was kind of like. Have you guys seen the Netflix show Mindhunter? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, like, for the listeners at home, uh, you've got FBI agents go around um, the U.S. and interview serial killers to find out, like, okay, how does this person tick? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I went around and I interviewed as part of, like, the customer discovery process because I'm, like, an internal startup. To find mm-hmm. the serial killers to, within your organization. <laughs> yeah, to, to find the really good portfolio managers and then figure out what their process is. And, like, what do you do? How do you start at the top of the funnel? How do you get something into the funnel? How does it come out the bottom of the funnel? Yeah. And what I found is is that while I've got people in Singapore, Hong Kong, Zurich, London, New York, Chicago, like all over the place, there are actually some common things that people do day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And, and those common things I can then build automated or scientific processes around. And now all of a sudden I've ma- not only made their life better, but I've made them more efficient, which gives them scale, which allows them to cover more companies, which allows them to find better alpha and maybe do higher value added things like meet with more company management teams. Yep. Um, you know, a good example of that is we've got a product um, um, and this isn't proprietary in any way. I think a lot of people are trying to do this, um, but we've got an internal product that um, da- helps speed up the reading process. Mm-hmm. 
So analysts, um, you know, spend a ton of time reading documents, hopefully. Um, and they could be 10Ks, 10Qs. Most people actually don't read those. Um, and there's a reason why, and I'll get to that. Um, earnings transcripts, you know, because you cover 100 companies and can only be on 10 calls or something mm -hmm. like that. And then sell-side research. Um, and then news reports as well, too, right? So you spend a ton of time, like, consuming, um, you know, text. Um, how can we make that more efficient? Um, and on the 10Ks, 10Q front, um, there's a great statistic that the, um, the Wolf Research guys put out uh, where they were speaking at a hackathon that we ran last year. Um, and he said, 30 years ago, uh, and if I butcher the facts, I'm sorry, but the directionality is correct. Um, <laughs> 30 years ago, the average 10K was 3,000 words. Yep. Today, the average 10K is 150,000 words. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of it's boilerplate. But if you, if you say, okay, well, now let's assume that um, I've got 10 analysts covering the S&P 500, and it takes an analyst half a second to consume a word. So you read the word, you understand the context and all that. Um, those 10 analysts would take the entire year to just read 10Ks. Yeah. Like, and that's 10-hour days, nonstop. All you're doing is reading. Yeah. So what happens is people just don't read it. Yeah. Like, and so there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal, I think, or maybe it was the New York Times, actually. Sure, it wasn't Waters Technology. It, just, it, it just should have been. It okay, should have been. You could have had the scoop. You could have had the scoop. But um, uh, about how there's all this sort of hidden information that people aren't consuming. It's not hidden. It's it's actually out in the open. It's a, it's a federally regulated like sure. document that people just aren't reading. That's information. So we've built a whole process, um, and we utilize a third-party vendor um, that, ha that has helped a lot, and we add some uh, gymnastics on top of it to help um, our teams consume this really valuable information in a very, very quick and efficient manner. Yeah, yeah I think it's similar to, I think JP Morgan has a similar thing called, I think it's called NewsPro or something, which is like an AI and NLP yeah. based uh, platform that analyzes 8Ks and 10Ks. And yeah, trust me, as, That's as a reporter, right. he brings yeah. up the Wall Street Journal, we bring up JP Morgan. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, and again, like, trust yeah. me, as a reporter who used to be on the company's beat, having yeah. to read those things is a, is a nightmare um, yeah. for sure. But yeah, I mean, that's obviously a, a very And this is where. The AI machine learning, I'm assuming that, that this is kind of like the, the natural language processing end of it comes through to help to take these massive documents and distill it down for an analyst. Um, you see that a lot in the patent sector, people like going yep. through patents and stuff like that. Is, is that correct in saying? Yeah, it's a combination of like topic extractions. So like, what is this document talk, talking about? Yeah. You know, what is it highlighting? Um differently than its peers what is it highlighting in context right that's the yeah thing yeah sense. differently mm -hmm. than like it did last quarter or last year mm -hmm. and then it's a matter of like okay well now we extract the topics you know what's the tone of the topic that this person is talking about How is that, that improving like the the, the the tone the sentiments is that because people have been trying to crack that nut for a while especially on social media sites certainly yeah. Do you find that the vendor space is getting better at that, or do you think that there's still a long way to go in that area? Um, I, I would say it a little bit differently. I would say that for many years, many of the vendors have focused on news sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you write an article, you know, it's bullish on, you know, the asset management industry or something like sure. that. Um, you know, there's a million people out there that can understand that that's bullish. Um, and then they provide a sentiment score into the marketplace. I wish I had a million readers, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Something to aspire to. Um, but, uh, and then it's consumed, and then, you know, like somebody goes and trades something on it. Like that's, no. that, um, 
it, it's 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 been kind of out there for a long time. Some of it's noisy, um, and then if anything is good, the half life is very short. So like you have three days to trade, or else you're not going to make any money on that. True. Um, this is actually more about sort of you know kind of longer term. Like what's the what's the effect of this particular piece of information on you know um, twelve to twenty four month returns? Um, and we've done a lot of testing on our side. Um, in order to verify that this is actually something we should be, you know, investing in, that says that there are certain topics um, and there's certain intensity around that topics that we can extract. And yeah, actually, like it, it is quite informative for like that investor who's focused on a 12 to 24 month period. Sure. Yeah. Let me ask you this: As you've gone about this process, there's in, in Wall Street and in, in any, I guess, sector, there's always this this challenge around talent acquisition and around culture. I, their conversation, the conversation is so old, I, I kind of hate it in a lot of ways, but it is something that is very, very real. Can you talk about some of the lessons learned as far as acquiring the right people for this group to help with this specific yeah. function and about maybe some lessons learned about, all right, we, we thought that the group would be this, but really when we found out from just what the organization needs we had to kind of change up yeah i mean so a couple things like um i i do agree with you that like it is kind of an old trope that ah these guys are so hard to come by mm -hmm. and um you know not to give too much of the secret sauce it's because people are looking in the wrong places right mm -hmm. um and what i would say is um you know the approach that i take is i'd rather have um uh liberal arts engineers mm -hmm. and by what i mean by that is like somebody who is you know, analytically talented, but thinks from like a mental model or liberal arts perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and because the problem changes every day, the market changes every day, the problems that changes, the clients change. Um, so you need to be able to adapt and kind of overcome that. Intellectual right. flexibility, right? Intellectual sure. flexibility. Yeah. So if you're sitting there, you know, searching, you know, uh, and I'm not saying all computer science degrees, but like if you're going to hardcore engineering school or you're plucking somebody out of a PhD program, um, that person's not going to work. I mean, think about like the PhD program itself, right? You spend five years of your lucky focusing on one little thing that you're <laughs> going to publish a dissertation on. And you're yeah. going to write 200 plus pages of, of this one little thing. Like, so what do you actually know? Like, mm. you know how to do that one little thing. Um, but you actually, you know, can you take that, that learning that you've sure. gone through and then apply it to a whole bunch of different areas? And, you know, forget about the fact that now you have to come out of the sandbox. You have to come out of the toy box and you have to deal with the real world. And you have those shallow, narrow, and sparse problems. Like, it's very hard for people to – most people can't do that. Yeah. And so, like, I found the greatest the, – the, the people on my team who have the most impact are people who actually – you know, maybe they weren't engineers to start. Um, or if they were engineers to start, they've always had kind of an intellectual curiosity – like a, 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 a want to learn type attitude. Um, uh, and so they're able to kind of learn new things and evolve and apply, and apply new things. Um, the other thing that I would say is that I think differentiates our team versus say some of the other similar teams that you'd find across uh, Wall Street is, is that um, over 50% of our team, they've spent time picking stocks. Um, and so they speak the same language as their internal clients, the fundamental managers, the fundamental analysts. They understand kind of what are the problems and challenges that those people face on a day-to-day -day basis. 
they're also really talented engineers, um, you know, but um, very talented engineers. Um, But they, because they speak that same language, um, uh, they connect immediately with these people, you know, and by connecting immediately, now all of a sudden, like, the adoption rates go way, way up. And then the last thing is what I found, you know, super important is I have one uh, guy on my team um, who he acts as like a bridge between engineering and the fundamental side of the house. And so he... The translator. He's a translator, yeah, exactly. Like he's the, he's the interpreter between Python and <laughs> C, right? Um, and so his background is he, um, you know, II ranked number one analyst in airlines for 20 plus years, went to the buy side, picked stocks for years, but like always part of his process, he was using data to forecast revenue for the airlines. Mm-hmm. Everybody's gonna be able to figure out who this person is um, because he's so <laughs> unique out there. Um, uh, but like, to be honest, like he's w- probably, you know, uh, one of the most important people on my team because he's been there, he's used data, he's used, um, uh, mach- you know, primitive machine learning, but machine learning to figure out how to forecast, you know, KPIs, how to think about these problems. And so he interacts directly with the client base, and I think it's 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 a huge advantage for us to be able to drive this type of adoption into the into the analyst population. True. Yeah. Were there any mistakes made that you, you as this team was started came off the ground? Was there anything that you thought that that you look back on and you say, I would do that differently today? Yeah, I mean the biggest mistake was kind of what I mentioned before is that we spent um, you know nine months focusing on this massive alternative data industry and saying that there's so much gold to be mined here. Mm -hmm. Um, There probably is, but the probability that you're going to be able to extract that in any reasonable time timeline, you know, like I, I wish everyone success at that. I mean, it's always been the case, right? You, you spoke earlier about the AQRs of the world who were doing yep. this sort of 15 years ago, and, and that's yep. the people who have a specific target in mind, yep. know specifically which data set they want to use and go in and find the alpha in that rather than sort of anything else, right? Who, yep. uh, rather than trying to trail through the entire morass of... Uh, well, of, of I also think it kind of like misses the point. Like, mm-hmm. So like, what are you trying to achieve? Like, If you're a quant fund, you just want to extract alpha, yep. and, you know, and you know that alpha is fleeting. So like, you're going you're gonna, to you know, crank up the, the, the mining operation or... Yep. You know the, the the army of PhDs who are going to attack this data, and you can do it, right? Um, that's what you're optimized around. Um, what QED is trying to achieve is is trying to really you know change the fundamental investment process, um, and that's not fleeting. Um, the process itself is um, uh, you know pretty static, you know, but the components of it can be improved dramatically through this, and so. You know, we took this nine months to, and you know, while I wouldn't say it's actually a mistake because if we hadn't sort of learned from it, like I don't think yeah. we'd be, um, you know, driving, you know, the kind of adoption internally as we are today. So, um, you know, it was not necessarily time wasted. Um, I wish I would have learned it a little faster, but sure. it wasn't time wasted. I mean, it's just I think our listeners they're always interested to hear about career paths and stuff like that as. Somebody that you graduated from the University of Chicago, yes? Yep. Um, and you joined UBS in 2003? Yep, July oh, 2003. Man. Look at me getting my facts yeah, right for right. once. Um, your career path, actually, just looking at it, it's been a little bit diverse. And as you say, I guess that's also you know what you're kind of looking for a little bit yep. in, the, in the hiring process. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the roads that you've taken, some of the lessons that you've learned, and maybe some advice for people that are coming up, maybe some of the younger folks on the QED team or that are at other organizations that are trying to 
figure out how to get through that path? Yeah, I, I think um, there are two things. Um, number one is uh, you never stop learning. Like um, you have to be very conscious and sort of self-aware and there are a million ways to do it, you know, like take time to reflect, whatever it is about like where you are on your learning curve. Mm-hmm. And if at any point in your career, your learning curve starts to stagnate or flatten out in any way, you know, find somebody senior that you trust and talk about it with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, to be honest, like every sort of jump in my career has come from kind of that exact that exact thing. Sure. Um, and that also leads into what I, what I was gonna say next is, um, you know, find great mentors. It really matters um, who you learn um, the trade from. Um, I've been able, I've been very fortunate to work with who I, I consider, you know, amazing folks who, you know, you know, one level above me or a couple levels above me who are willing to like give me their time to teach me, you know, how, what are the best ways, um, you know, uh, uh, the most effective ways to work. You know, I'll give, I'll give a quick story. Um, so in 2003, the GTP program, which is the graduate training program at UBS, you go through kind of three months of classroom and then you hit the desk and you rotate around. That's what it was back then. It's slightly different now. Um, but um, uh, the guy who was running the program trading desk um, came and gave a speech, like a rah-rah speech. Um, and one of the things he said is make sure your career work ethic doesn't look like a VWAP curve. Make right. it look like a TWAP curve. <laughs> like, and and, I, and I, I sat there and I thought, and you know, I'd never done any trading, but I kind of understood what that meant. But I sat there and said, wow, that makes total sense. Like, yeah. like mm-hmm. that makes total sense. Like, whatever has to happen, like, I want to work for you. Like, you know, I will do whatever. And I will work for you. And funnily enough, like, so I hit the desk. I got to work for him for, you know, almost 10 years. And then, um, uh, six years. Um, and then I went to him and I said, hey, like, my learning curve is stagnating. Yeah. And at the time, he was global head of Investment Bank's prop desk. He was like, great. Like, uh, you know, let's, let's, you know, put you into, yeah, yeah, why don't we, you know, figure something out for you? Like, you know, let's do that. And that helped me take like the next leap. And coincidentally, now I get to work with him again. Like he ended up leaving UBS and then coming back um, and I get to work with him. He's in a different role now, but, um, you know, having a mentor like that, like somebody who, you know, um, you know, you can sort of count on for advice on a regular basis. That's super important. So, and to be honest with you, for like the young people listening, like, you know, senior people love to do this stuff. Everybody loves to give advice. Um, You know, everybody wants, you know, to, you know, to help out, you know, a younger version themselves. So don't be nervous, like asking these people, they want to do it. It's good for their career too, because this helps them sort of progress in their, you know, managerial aspirations and everything like that. So. Every time James has ever come to me and said, "Tony, you know how do how do I you know rise?" I go, "Shut up, James! I just don't want to talk to you." You, know, you, you drive me crazy. It's a good thing it's never happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> and let me ask you this: you know, as I understand it, tell me if my facts are incorrect, but uh, you like science fiction, and uh, you're, get, you're getting into the reading space, or, or you've been in reading space, obviously, but that uh, you've made it to a point of uh, wanting to be able to read more and get my more diverse any books that you're that are knocking your socks off yeah. recently I, I mean i i love i love to read like um you know i think this is kind of you study charlie munger you know he talks about repeatedly like you have to read you have to read yeah. read, read 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 and i just happen to really love sci-fi um and um you know i was just on vacation last week uh, it was actually vacation for my 10-year wedding anniversary um congratulations but, uh, thank you uh, but like during that you know i chose to re reread uh dune uh mm-hmm. the classic like sci-fi 
Um, it's actually more almost like fantasy than sci-fi. Uh, and that's but, what they keep saying is that the guy that kind of sees it as like a kind of almost like a, a classic hero's journey, I guess, yeah. rather than sort of actually it just happens to take place in the future. There are actually some like really and I actually. I wanted to think about, like, what am I going to take away from this? Like, because I love to, like, come in, and my team actually hates it, because I come in, and I'll be like, oh, like, I've read this book. It's, like, this this, <laughs> this crazy sci-fi thing, and I've got this one quote where I'm going to take away, like, yeah. you know, some leadership aspect to it. You're all going to learn it now. Yeah, but the one thing I took away was, um, for those who have read it, um, uh, or those who haven't, Basically, and I'm not going to spoil anything, you know, there's this spice and it's like a drug and people take it um, and it has all sorts of mystical properties. And, you know, one of the properties for the people who drive the spaceships is they've got short term like foresight. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ends up happening towards the end, one of the lessons to take away at the end is they, they rely so much on this short term foresight that they miss the big picture. Sure. And they miss, like, the, the longer dated foresight. And it's, you know, not to get too corny about it, but, like, it's the same thing in investing, is, is that I can build an awesome model. Like, the best deep learning, you know, throw every buzzword in the soup, you know, um, the best deep learning model. You know, it might get up and walk away at some point. But um, if it only gives me short-term foresight, I can't rely too much on it. Do not, you know, it's kind of the the... I think it was Emmanuel Dorman, right? Like the model's behaving badly. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like you can't, um, you know, focus too much on it. And I hear that there's a, a movie that, or, or that they're remaking, apparently the original movie. I never saw the original movie. Actually, I've never read the book. It was a mini-series rather than a movie, wasn't it, really, I guess? Yeah. 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 Um, David Lynch. Are you, are you, are you hopeful that, uh, that they'll be able to come out with a proper movie to encapsulate uh, what this book is? Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Like, I think it's really hard. Like, um, you know, kind of like Zen Buddhist and Jungian philosophy may not make it into ninety minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I, I think you know, with especially with these sort of topic sets that I like so much, I'm frequently disappointed. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, think back to like, um, you know, everybody probably loves Lord of the Rings. If you don't, like, you know, come at me. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, think about like the anticipation, like coming into like those three movies and like what a Herculean effort it was for Peter sure. Jackson to mm. like actually deliver on that. Like, um, although they're remaking that as well too. Like Amazon's doing a series they're on doing that. doing a series, yeah. yeah right. And I think it's not necessarily, oh, it's a remake, isn't it? It's the, they're doing the Fredo and Yeah, think, so, yeah. yeah. Jesus, already? Already, yeah. yeah. It's nuts. But if you watch the films they like the CGI is a bit wonky and doesn't quite stand up. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. But no, it's true. I mean, like, you think about, um, so Frank Herbert June was 1965, like, yeah. Robert Heinlein, Starship Troopers. And yeah. if you read the book and then look at, Paul Verhoeven's film from was it ninety four or something I think which yeah. like, couldn't be more different. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I love Sasha Troopers the film and the yeah. book. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's always you always have to kind of I guess measure your expectations when something like this gets done right for a book. Yeah, I think reading is just so much richer. I mean, there's plenty of like great like you know cinema and TV out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, but for the most part, like because you have to when you read, you embed you know part of your own self in like the interpretation of the book, yeah. like it becomes, for me, a much richer process. Mm-hmm. You know, not to say that I don't binge watch a ton of TV. Like, yeah. um, you know, probably way too much. And I'd probably be much more productive, um, you know, if I didn't. But yeah. uh, but either way, <laughs> I, I love to read. And so I kind of have a thing where, you know, I'll read one book for fun and then kind of one book for work. I mean, it ultimately, it's all for fun. Like, so mm-hmm. the other book, like, I'm, I started to write after I finished Dune, which is more like a workbook, um, is uh, a classic book called um, The Diffusion of Innovations. Um, and that was also written in the 60s, you know, go figure. Um, but um, it, it was basically this guy who studied um, uh, hybrid corn yields 
um, in rural communities in, in Iowa. So, you know, how fast did folks, you know, convert um, over into this, you know, hybrid corn, which for intensive purposes, like was a better mousetrap. Yeah. Um, and so he identified kind of what are the sort of key conditions that, you know, uh, facilitate that type of uh, diffusion of an innovation. You know, and some of the things we already talked about, like my secret weapon of this guy who's the bridge between, um, you know, uh, the fundamental investors and the engineering. That's one of the things that helps, you know, diffusion. Yeah. This guy identified as well, too. So. Yeah, I think after uh, making my way through the second edition of Efficient Asset Management last month, I'm not going to read a workbook again for a while. Uh, <laughs> well, for yeah. me, see, I, know, see I, I just finished up uh, AI Superpowers by uh, Kai Fu Lee. Okay. Oh, which yeah. Is, it's I heard insane. that's really good. It's a yeah. really great book. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it just really kind of lays out and really makes you think about what the future of AI yeah. will bring. I, I really got into that a lot. You know, let me just, you know, one last thing, because... It's funny because, like, for me, I, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, or I don't read a lot of fiction. Most of my stuff is uh, on a nonfiction side. Um, but, like, my favorite book of all time is 1984, Orwell, and that was yeah. long before, you know, I was, you know, I, for 10 years that was my favorite book. And yeah. now all of a sudden there's so much premonition around it, I guess. Yeah. Um, it is interesting now because you were talking before about you don't ever want to become stagnant yeah. in your knowledge, right? So for me, I try and listen to a lot of different spots. Like, I, you know, I'll just listen to here are the new releases on Spotify. Yeah. I, I don't want to be the old guy that's just like, well, I'm just going to listen to Garth Brooks all the time and, you know, yeah. see what happens. I, I want to know what's happening out Garth there. Garth is awesome. Like, yeah, uh, no, yeah, don't get me wrong. You know, yeah. There's always there's a time and place to go back. Yeah. But it's, it's funny in literature on, and maybe this is because I am not a fiction person, but do you find that there is good fiction still being generated today on the likes of your 1984s of dune of stuff like that or because i know on the sci-fi side there's certainly a lot because three body pop problem yeah three body uh, problems. she's, yeah. she's yeah. in yeah. lou right yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's fantastic. rather recent yeah like, yeah. Uh, yeah and that so i guess it, it still exists but is it or is it tougher to find those maybe i, I think, don't know well I, I yeah i actually have this debate with um the guy a colleague he will only read books that are over 100 years old. And, <laughs> Somewhat and, limiting. Uh, like, oh, like, <laughs> but, like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, yeah. But you ask him, like, why would you do But every them? year you get a new set of yeah, books. Yeah, you get new books that roll right in. Like, uh, but uh, you ask him why, because it's, you know, it stands the test of time and, uh -huh. and all this stuff. You know, I think that um, I'd rather read something interesting regardless of when it's written. Yeah. And, like, the human experience, like, um, you know, it, it, it's the same but different. Yeah. Like, um, you know, maybe like technology has evolved a little bit, you know, um, but humans are humans. They still, you know, you know, they're still the same, you know, kind of main archetypes that you'll find in sort of classical Greek literature versus, you know, the latest, uh, you know, the latest stuff coming out today. So I, I don't try to limit myself at all. Like, um, you know, from that perspective, you know, I do find, you know, that, I mean, there are two other sort of statistical aspects that are going on there with, with right now it's so much easier to publish mm -hmm. you know you could self-publish on amazon so like the the friction for getting a book widely distributed is much lower so you see you know a lot more so yeah. from a count perspective um there's going to be um a higher you know probably the same proportion but there's going to be a higher number count wise of really bad stuff out there yeah um and then the other thing is there's a selection bias aspect to it right so you know, you only know about, you know, Dune, Lord of the Rings, 1984, sure. 
you know, because they have stood the test of time. Like there's been this generations of people who have said that this is good stuff and you should read it. Um, so it naturally self-selects it into sort yeah. of the good category. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there is, you know, hundreds of books, um, you know, during that time frame that, you know, nobody ever remembers because. But they were. Uh, I mean, I was yeah. going to say 1984 was pretty much a cheerful knockoff of Brave New World, which came out in the 50s, which itself yeah. is a cheerful knockoff of We by Eugene yeah. Zamyatin from the 20s. Oh, well, look at your knowledge of books. I, just <laughs> like fiction, so. I, I, thought, I thought where you're going with that is um, with the Spotify example. So the way that Spot and this brings it back to machine learning, because mm-hmm. why not, right? Um, the way that Spotify um, figures out what you should listen on, like say you're like Discover Weekly, um, is like a, a nearest neighbor's uh, approach. So yeah. it says, hey, I've got, a, I've got this you know, corpus of stuff that this guy has listened to. Um, let me, you know, you know, determine, you know, what are the different ways to describe that? And then, you know, build some nearest neighbors algorithm to find other stuff that's just like it. Yeah. And I've been like hammering Spotify for like, I thought you were gonna go down like the echo chamber. Like you always listen or read to the same stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I've been hammering <laughs> Spotify for like five years on like, give me the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they might've actually just rolled that out too. Like where like, give me the farthest neighbors. Yeah. Like yeah. I want to hear the, the most different stuff. Give me yeah. some Austin death metal right now. Yeah. Let's go I mean, with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was interviewing um, the, the singer of the Jockey Murphy's about like 10 years ago maybe in London he was saying the exact same thing he said yeah. you know the worst thing with these kind of genius like like yeah. things is that you just hear more of the same yeah like he says like you know if you put my band in there all you're going to hear is more like Irish Celtic punk you're not yeah. going to hear the replacements you're not going to hear the Beatles you're not going to hear anything else that actually expands I guess that's a good point and like even so. with Netflix that's true too is they're trying to they put, actually I guess that's a really interesting point right mm. that even as you're trying to expand your knowledge base actually you're just being exposed to similar and similar things. Well, I, I think the hope is is that like you as a human let's say you can hold I think this is a psychological thing like you can hold like seven distinct factors in your mind right so yeah. you can describe Dropkick Murphys in seven different ways well, maybe there's 32 different, you know, statistically significant ways to describe them. Um, and, you know, maybe the 32nd one leads to a connection to, I don't know, Bach or something like yeah. that. Like, right. you know, like, you, you hear about Bach fight, and yeah. death metal a lot. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, um, but uh, you know, and hopefully that sort of expands your mind in ways that you, you, you wouldn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I find a lot of good stuff off of the... Um, uh, the the weekly Spotify playlist yeah. that they send me. Yeah, the little collections they do, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. And like so. the Apple Editor's Choice is pretty good, like a lot yeah. of time and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, this has been truly a fact. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much uh, yeah, for absolutely. coming in. And uh, yeah, um, if there's anything else uh, that you guys have rolling out, uh, obviously we'd love to have you back on. We'd love to be back. Thanks for having me. Thanks, yeah. man. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah.